I'm Nick Bircher and this is the Nordic Future Makers podcast. Today's Nordic Future Maker is Bjorn Jeffrey, who's recently returned to Sweden after spending time in San Francisco. Bjorn has founded a number of successful digital businesses and also works with the boards of a number of companies too. So Bjorn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do, please? Absolutely. I am. A, I see myself as an entrepreneur. I started a lot of uh, companies, some complete failures, some minor successes, and then the odd very successful company, the last of which being uh, Tokaboka, which is a kids app company, which uh, did very well and also was the one that took me to San Francisco, uh, where I've been spending the last eight years. I'm originally I'm half British, a quarter Norwegian and a quarter Swedish and spent most of my life in Sweden running things here. But yeah, I just, just returned to Malmö in the southern part of Sweden after yeah this American stint for the last eight years or so. Okay. So let's go back a few years. So you were originally in journalism and you created various blogs and digital startups and you ended up at Bonnier Digital working with, with commerce and future media and tech and lots of things like that. Yeah, we were, I was, I was at the research and development team, uh, sort of coming out of journalism and sort of, I was always more of a, like an internet person working with journalism as opposed to a journalist working with the internet. Um, now the two are very sort of similar, they're very close, but when I was in journalism, that was still the internet section of the online edition was the part of the paper that no one wanted to be in, but uh, because it was the you know, it was the least prestigious, basically, and I think that has changed a lot lately. Yeah. But this this sort of being more of an internet person led me to just an interest in in media in general and sort of also like the intersection of where journalism and the media meets technology. Again, like today, this is pretty obvious, but that wasn't as obvious at the time. We're talking you know ten to fifteen years back in time now. So I ended up working for the research and development team for Bonnier, which is a large family-owned media business at the time. They were about 175 companies in, I think, 17 countries, something like that, about 11,000 employees. And now they've shrunk considerably. And that sort of prime holdings are in book publishing, newspapers, and magazines. That's like the core, the core holdings on the media side. So... What we spent time was looking at trying to figure out, you know, the, the future of the future of media, basically broadly. So what's the future of newspapers, what's the future of books? And one of the things that we uh, were tasked with, which was a slightly ungrateful task, uh, <laughs> looking back at it, was what's the future of magazines? Um, and particularly when looking at sort of at the time, there was a rumor that there was going to be a large iPhone coming out, which, of course, turned out to be the iPad, but we hadn't seen it there and then. So since the form factor was so close to the magazine, the notion was like, well, this should be a perfect magazine reader because it you know, essentially has the same shape. Now, it turns out that having the same shape is no guarantee for making a good media product. <laughs> um, but we did make a, a sort of a prototype that, that was, I think, very interesting um, and, and uh, sort of was very conceptual in the sense that maybe digital magazines could look in this way. They could try to accomplish similar things as magazines do in real life. Um, and we published this as a video prototype, just saying this is something that one could consider and these are some ideas. And then this sort of exploded. Uh, it, it got a life of its own. And then it, it very rapidly had to turn into 
some sort of publishing platform to actually produce these magazines in this manner. Um, and this was very difficult <laughs> to do because this was, <laughs> we went from a video um, which was only a, a render of like, and, and completely conceptual with no idea really of sort of obvious practicalities or anything like that and tried to turn that into a real product, which was turned out to be very, very challenging. A very interesting process though. And, and also a good reminder that, you know, when looking at consumer behavior, uh, you know, and I mentioned this because this is what led to the Tokaboka insight afterwards. But the, the consumer behavior is very rarely what you'd like it to be. In fact, it's, it's almost always, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the least amount of friction is, is uh, you know, on the platform. So in this case, we thought it would be great, or, or maybe our executives thought it'd be great if you used the iPad to read magazines. But as soon as you put an iPad in the hands of people, most, I mean, very few of them thought this is perfect for magazines. They thought this is perfect for a lot of other things, including playing games or other, or, or uh, for this matter, this would be perfect for my kid, which I think no one really saw coming. So we try, we spent some time trying to convince people to use it as a magazine reader, which was difficult, but we spent absolutely no time convincing them that this was a fun platform for kids because they were already playing with that. So, so that was sort of that where this this split basically like maybe we should just look at what people are actually doing with the devices as opposed to what we would like them to do and maybe that would lead us to a better place and this was sort of the starting point for talk about kind of stuff okay because i remember a few years when the ipad first came out just after that we went to um, a museum in london and my young son was trying to swipe on a black and white television yeah and it was that whole thing of children from the moment they're born nowadays have a different approach to technology and and how to use devices to perhaps us as adults are trying to force our old old fashioned ways of doing things on, onto new technology i think it's very human and very natural and, and you want things to replicate but i think maybe what we should have been doing is trying to replicate what what function did magazines fill in people's lives um instead so it could be things like time for yourself like a little moment of inspiration or sort of a, like a tiny break um or you know in, in everyday life that's kind of what magazines can be not always depends on the genre and things like that but broad strokes that's sort of what it is but maybe the way in which you did that should be completely different has nothing to do with maybe even imagery or even reading Maybe it's closer to video or something like that, which sort of serves the same purpose as magazines did before and maybe still does today to a certain extent, um, but sort of take, takes it on in a completely different way. That was, that was, a, that was a good, good learning and a good reminder, I think, at that time. And uh, digital magazines are still around. They look sort of broadly similar to, to what magazines look like today, at least sort of these iPad faux PDF versions of things. Um, so it's been proven to be a pretty difficult thing to innovate within. So that that makes me feel a little bit better. I think at least we had the ambition, but we did not really pull it through to the extent that we could have. Okay. But I, I guess that uh, starts to get you thinking, and that's kind of where the, the seed in your mind kind of came from when you when you then went on to your next bit, which was Tokaboka. Yeah. I mean, we I don't think anyone saw, and especially not Apple themselves, thought that, you know, here's a... Here's a piece of, of hardware with a glass front, which at the time cost about $500. We think that people are going to buy this and then give this to their three-year-old children. 
I don't think anyone saw that really coming. I mean, but yet when you looked at what was actually happening, that was what was going on. And we read a report from the, you know, Sesame Street actually has a think tank called the Joan Gans Security Center. And they put out a report that referenced this very interesting phrase called the pass-back effect. So that is basically parents taking their devices and passing them back to the kids in the back seat. So what this sort of showed was that kids were getting a getting access to disproportionately good hardware, you know, like the latest versions of iPhones. They weren't bought for them necessarily, but they got introduced and had access to a shared device. So suddenly they could do things and they had capabilities uh, that they normally would not have had if you looked at sort of old consumer uh, electronics for children. It was sort of quite low end, but suddenly you're using your parents' device. And then this then in turn leads to sort of iPads, of course, because it's larger size, form factors is more suitable and so on and so forth. But this was really just following what people were doing um, already, as opposed to convincing them that this is something you should do. So we picked up on that and thought, okay, well, if we take this as a starting point, how could we create a product that would work really well in this context? And what we found when we did our research was it seemed, although we can't could entirely prove this, but it seemed as if most products that were designed for children were sort of designed from an adult's point of view, sort of an adult's perspective. Uh, and what I mean by that is like they were products that adults would think, well, what would I like if I was a child? You know, and then that's where you end up in sort of educational. Uh, sort of edutainment sort of things, a lot of games, a lot of books, uh, and those sorts of things. But if you look at what how kids actually play, they, they play in a much, much broader way than that. So our our bet was basically, we think kids are going to be wanting to play and be interested in the same things that they've always been interested in, broadly speaking. The question is, which one of these sort of categories of playing could we actually take on um, in this sort of screen-based context? Now, some things are obviously very difficult to do, sort of like active play, which is, you know, um, playing tag or just playing sports and things like that. So Pokemon Go gave a bit of a go of that. So like it's possible to do it, but it's a tricky one. And also you might, you might not want to run, have your kids run around with these devices necessarily because they could easily break and stuff like that. But a lot of the others like make believe, which is more about role playing and things like that, perfectly suitable for this for this genre. So we sort of leaned in to say, okay, Let's not make games specifically. Let's instead try to make digital toys, which has more, it's more open-ended. So no beginning, no end, no rules, no right, no wrong. It's more, more sort of akin to Lego in the sense that you can, you can play with it in whatever way you'd like. There's no right or wrong way of, of doing Lego. It's just anything that you do is, is correct. So that became sort of the niche and sort of the spark. And then we sort of went off to the races really and tried to sort of, we had a, produced 10 little digital toys in the first year. And uh, yeah, and it sort of, it took off after that. So the the first year was 2010, kind of towards the end of 2010. And then you were there, you had a good few years there and it just kept growing and growing and growing. So was it 200 million downloads you ended up with at, at Tokaboka? It depends where you draw the line, but but so, so now it's probably more like 300 or something like that. But yeah, it was a huge, huge success in that uh, in that regard, I mean, we, it was a good reminder as, you know, I've started other companies and just having wind in your sails is just so amazing, <laughs> which we had for a little while, you know, it, it's just, you, you, we were, we were 
we had good timing. You know, we were we were in a perfect macro. This was uh, devices were were to be found everywhere. The capacity of devices was getting very good. So price was going down, capacity was going up. It was just a very good time to be uh, making these sorts of products because it was relatively barren. You know, it was it was empty. There was a lot of space for a, for a newcomer like us to produce something, and that was you know well made and and with high ambitions. There was a lot of space for us in the sense that it doesn't really make sense. You would have thought that the Disney's and the Nickelodeons of the world would have completely cornered this market, but it was still a bit young. It was too early, and and so it lay it left space for us to to be able to sort of launch into this, even if we were yeah a small team. Uh, of Swedes sitting in Stockholm, um, but very much had global ambitions from the beginning, and, and yeah, somewhat surprisingly, I'll say. But it's again, it's nice when the when the market carries you <laughs> with it. Uh, it it works really well, um, which is nice. So, so how quickly did it scale? Because you ended up with offices in Toronto and New York and San Francisco and Stockholm, and you've kind of got this world class brand. But did it? Did it scale straight away or did it take some time before you got the wind in your sails or, or how did it kind of grow and develop? Um, it took time. Uh, I mean, certain things sort of took off. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's a difficult question because it depends on what, from what aspect you want to look at it. So initially, I was very stressed and I thought, I, I wonder if this is even going to work. We knew very little about the App Store. It was very tricky um to to you know just even figure out the mechanics of like well, how would we even what marketing mechanic could you even use regardless of whether we could pull them off or we could afford them but like what would even work so in many aspects we were young and inexperienced and and stressed because it was difficult to find real levers that that worked but on the other hand you know looking back at it we actually reached a fair amount of success relatively quickly because we had a, we had primarily we had a product called Toka Hair Salon, which is exactly what you would imagine. It's a character that walks in and, and gets a haircut, and it was sort of fun from the first swipe. And we had other products that were good, but this was the one that really took off. And it was, it was about after about six months or so, something like that, maybe we sort of we figured out okay, this this we seem to be onto something here. There's something going on, which is um, interesting and and promising. So I wouldn't say it sort of immediately, you know, we never looked back since then, but at least that gave us enough confidence to think, like, I think we can do this. Um, I, I think I think we're, we're actually, we have sufficient amount of insight and we've managed to produce something which is good enough for us to want to keep going. So, so, so yeah, relatively quickly in one regard, but this sort of the, the, the quest of figuring out how would we actually run this company? And, and how, yeah, what are the marketing mechanics? And how do you organize this in different parts of the world? That was a very much an ongoing process, I'd say. And you went, you ended up with kind of revenue in in the millions of dollars, and it's all profitable and things like that. But I guess if you're in the kids market, you you can't just go and say, oh, it's funded by advertising. You have to think of different kind of revenue mechanics as well. It is. It was. It was. It was. It was easier at the time um, because the, the market didn't have that many different sort of business models that you could choose from. But I think that, ironically, maybe was was a problem for us later because the the, the market that we were in, which was uh, the paid market, you know, basically you pay upfront and then you get the app, which is sort of a very well established business model in many other categories. But for software, it's tricky. 
Um, so we were there and we thought that was a very good fit for the kids market because it's parents buying something and kids playing with it and you're sort of separating the commerce from the child because you don't you don't really want to charge money to children for all manner of, of reasons. Um, so it'd be much more clean and better for everyone involved if the parents did the purchasing and then the child could play un, un, unencumbered. But that's changed a lot. So so that market doesn't really uh, exist anymore. I mean, it's there technically, but it has not had any growth for very many years. So now things have changed a lot uh, and sort of moved over to things like subscription and, and unlocking in-app purchase packs and stuff like that. So I'd say it was easier in the beginning to at least make a bet, but I think that that was probably something that we we should have reevaluated earlier than we actually did. Okay, and then Tokaboka was acquired in 2017, Spinmaster, and then since then you've been. I saw you've had another app that's been that was acquired by Cree, and then you're on, you're on the board of Rovio and and Swedish podcast company Acast as well. Yes. So, so since uh, after the acquisition, so it, again, it was this was a company owned by the Bonnier Group. So, so it sold to a Canadian toy and entertainment company called Spinmaster, um, and that yeah, it, was a, it was a good price. It was a good home, basically. It was a, a new home for it. They were obviously more probably well adjusted to take care of Tokaboka because they were already in the kids space and in that industry, as opposed to Bonnier, which was more focused on the yeah, literature and. And, and other sorts of media formats. But then I was there for yeah, a little while and then I left. And since then I've been sort of an independent um, person doing some work. And yeah, like you say, I'm serving on, on a few boards and doing advisory work um, of, of different types. And this is the same line of work that I was in at the end in San Francisco and that I sort of brought with me now to Malmo as well. So it's sort of a mixture of things, which I actually quite like. Um, it's quite useful, I think, to work with different things. Uh, you 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 lose and lack some of the focus, but on the other hand, it's also this you know the the, the brain works in a way that so you pick up things from different places. So it's actually there's a remarkable amount amount of sort of cognitive overlap in working in completely different industries, more so than than maybe one would have thought. Or at least that's been my experience. So it's been actually very very good fun and and, and very useful. Excellent. And I saw today, is it today that it's now public that you've become um, a columnist for a um, Swedish newspaper? Yes, actually, uh, it, it just, just came out. I'm going to be writing um, sort of analysis around tech companies um, for uh, Svenska Dagbladet, which is one of the um, Sweden's um, days. So they have, a, they have a business section called Nærensliv, which is uh, what I'm going to be writing for now. So hopefully you can be adding some of the some of the experiences that I had from uh, Silicon Valley and also you know, my, my business experiences of, of dealing with these large tech companies in, in person as well, to you know, try to give a, a better view of exactly how they work, I think, and, and sort of understand how they tick. Fantastic. So um, congratulations on that. Thank you. And I think that's a really good link to the, the question I ask everyone at the end of the podcast, which before I ask you... Um, you're the first person I've met who's got a list of things that you're interested in. So what are you curious about now? Yeah, there's oh, so much, so many things. I think that, that <laughs> this is the luxury of, of being slightly more free. You can allow your, your mind to sort of wander, I think. But, but I think what I'm, something that I'm interested in is yeah, taste as a counter trend to AI. 
I think that I, I think sort of the, the AI race very clear and very obvious uh, where that is heading. But I'm interested in like what are the things that would be difficult to automate with AI. That that those are the things that I'm curious about. And I think taste is one of those things. I'm thinking about art, thinking about fashion, design, architecture, those sorts of issues. I think that's going to realistically be quite easy to maybe augment with AI to make it sort of, you, you would help someone who's working with it and, and it could be useful for you. But I think it's very difficult to train something to, to understand why in fashion a certain pair of shoes works in one context, but they don't in a different context. And I think that that space is sort of an interesting thing. So I, the answer is probably not to have no automation or no algorithms whatsoever, but rather, well, what part of it should we be automating? So that's something I'm, I'm curious about and something that I'm thinking about. That's a, I think that has a lot a lot left to explore. Okay, so the, the kind of intangible things around arts and culture and feelings and design and, and all of those sort of things rather than necessarily the numbers and algorithms that can be optimised. I think the, the, the things, the, the more sort of math-driven things, it's easy to see where they're going to go. So like sequencing of things is going to be faster, it's going to be better and so on. It's very e relatively easy to see that it's a, it's a linear path going forward uh, of, of how these things are going to develop. But when it comes to, so yeah, like fashion, very tricky for me to see exactly like how, how, are the, how is that development going to affect something like fashion? It just doesn't seem as obvious to me. So that's what makes it interesting. It's just where where will this go? How could how could this sort of general speed increase and automation increase? What could it do for these areas that are based so much on you know people's taste and gut feeling? That to me is um, that makes me curious. So that whole area of creativity and and all of those things that you can't quite touch and or understand or it, it's more of the the feelings and, and things like that. Yeah, exactly. You've got a long, long list of things that you're interested in, but that, that's number one on your list, isn't it? The taste in AI. I think so. That, that, that's the, if I had to choose one, that's the one I'll go for. But the, the, there are many things to be curious about in the world. And is that something you're just watching or is that something that you're, you're thinking more in more depth around? I mean, yeah, you're always looking for, for, for uh, areas of, of you know, new ideas. I mean, looking at new ideas of starting new companies as well and things like that. So, but I'm not, uh, it's still, it's still early days. I think I, I'm not entirely sure where I'd go with this. Some of these things could just be very interesting to look at from the sidelines and sort of see where is this going to take us? And maybe there's a business opportunity further down the line as opposed to necessarily driving it there. But I don't know. Well, uh, time will tell. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a lot and I'm thinking a lot about it as a, as a first uh, starting point. Okay. I really appreciate you talking to me. I think, um, welcome back to Malmo. I know you've had quite some some adventures with moving across the world in the last few months, but um, you're, you're back in what you called Sweden's most interesting city. Yeah, I, I, I will stand by that statement. I think Malmo has uh, is, is broadly misunderstood and has a lot going for it, including you know, affordability, proximity, to Copenhagen and Copenhagen Airport and things like that. And, and it's just a generally very nice place to live, which is a good starting point in life at large. Perfect. Well, um, as I said, congratulations on your your new newfound um, role with uh, the Svenska Dagbladet. Um, welcome back to Sweden. And thank you very much for your time today.
Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And I think for everybody else, Bjorn is another great example of a Nordic future maker, someone who's really pushing the boundaries of of what can be done with digital and pushing the boundaries of how to think about the world and how to think about the future. So really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Bjorn. Thank you.